Hello, dear listener. I am Stephen Indrasano, your usual dialogue editor and uh, one of the producers here on the show. We have another special bonus episode today, thanks to our Seed and Spark supporters who got us off the ground and rolling. We are joined today by Dr. Jamie Bernthal Hooker, who is a visiting fellow at the University of Suffolk with a background in queer theory and popular literature. So you can imagine how excited we were to get him on the program. Jamie, welcome. How are you today? Hello. I'm very good. How are you? I'm excellent, thanks. Any day that I get to talk about the intersection between queer theory and literature is a good day. So you must be in a good mood a lot of the time. Oh, yes. So tell me a little bit about, let's start with the basics, right? Let's get some terms defined and out of the way. Uh, What makes queer theory? What is that umbrella term and... How can we kind of think about that for this conversation? Uh, Well, that might be the basic, but that's (laughs) honestly been a topic of huge debate and backstabbing and bloody violence throughout queer theory ever since it was a thing. Uh, So I guess it's not one thing. Queer theory, to me, is uh, approaching life, approaching texts from a perspective that is deliberately not straight and not normal in inverted commas right so this term queer this is something i want to get kind of on the record as early as possible Mm. has meant a lot of things to a lot of people and in this context are we referring to specifically sexuality or are we referring to sexuality and gender what's the history of the term if you don't mind kind of flagging it for us. Yeah, I realized I just gave a really kind of vague answer. That's okay. It's uh, my favorite thing about the term is it's delightfully, deliciously vague. Yes, it's very squishy and malleable. Yes. So the word queer is a very, very old word. It's been used for centuries and centuries and probably for the last 200 years or so, it's started to be used to describe people who maybe weren't seen as straight or or as typically conventionally masculine or feminine and it was a slur this is why a lot of older people even now and a lot of people in general still don't like to use the term queer because it was very much a slur and it was used to denigrate people it it literally means weird wrong strange unusual and it's really in the last 30 40 years that members of communities that have been outcast on the grounds of gender and sexuality have started embracing the word queer, whether it's to describe their identity or as an umbrella term to describe people we might call LGBT+. So it's a wonderfully malleable term. It can mean lots of things. It can mean nothing. That's part of what I call myself queer. And that's part of what attracts me to that is that it resists telling you which box it's in exactly. I, I feel very, very similar. It's, <laughs> it's fun across the pond here to have two very different people sharing a perspective, uh, even upon first meeting. It's lovely. So let's talk about the other part of your academic background here, popular literature. So we're going from this very heady kind of identity term. Let's define the other one, right? What makes something popular literature? literature that's popular 
Uh, so it's <laughs> books that. Lo- Sorry, I had to. Oh, good. It's books that lots of people read, but also there's a sense in popular literature of being mainstream, and therefore traditionally, I, I'm from an academic background, and traditionally, the more popular a writer is, the less worthy they're considered of study, purely because they appeal to the masses. Right. The two things about me that I like are books and being queer. They're my favorite things in the world. <laughs> and so obviously I smush them together in my career. Yeah. If you can do it every day, that's the job for sure. Yeah, exactly. So you come at this specifically from the direction, we were speaking a little bit before we started recording, from the direction of detective fiction. Yes. There's a rich history of detective fiction, especially kind of alongside the Gothic tradition. And I was wondering if you could... Help me understand what it is about detective fiction that makes it a rich field for queer academia and queer studies. Well, it's amazing because detective fiction is about good and evil, and it's about right and wrong. And it's about trying to put people and events into that binary of uh, this is good, this is bad, order is broken, order is restored. And it's never as clean as that in an actual book, because obviously life isn't that clean. So you have inevitably some conversations going on. I mean, my PhD thesis was the first sustained queer reading of Agatha Christie. Be still my heart. I know, right? (laughs) And really, I was just in kind of 12-year-old form throughout the whole experience, just combining my favorite things. But there was so much going on there, and very few people had really looked at such popular books from that perspective. And that's a writer a lot of people consider very, very conventional, very, very much part of the institution. And to find a whole world of queerness in those books was a really fascinating thing. So it wasn't so much about finding LGBT characters, although you can do that but about finding themes around identity, around what is normal, what is queer, what is outcast, what is othered, and what that says about society's attitudes to convention. So the thing about popular literature is it's always going to tap into conversations that are happening at the moment and attitudes that are happening at the moment. I want to kind of bring your specific lens to the project that we're doing today, which is this Dracula adaptation. And something you sparked for me that I think is really interesting is media that seeks to define good and evil. When you do your research, what are the kinds of things that you're looking for to tease apart cultural implicit standards for these characters are good, these characters are evil, these characters are straight, these characters are not? Okay, well, that's a really interesting question because... A lot of the way I read popular literature, the reading is really obvious to me. I don't have to dig for it. I read it and I think that is that. And part of that's because I've learned about contexts that many of these books were written in. But part of it is just the perspective and the life experience I'm coming from. So I can see certain what we'd call codes and recognize a character as uh, being in a way queer. And then I'll be really shocked to 
kind of go online and look around and find that no one else has said it. And a lot of it's about being able to accept that your reading is a completely valid one. Your experiences are just as significant in what you bring to the text as the conventional readings are. And something like Dracula, it's amazing how long the queerness lay undiscussed in it, because it's one of the queerest books I've ever read, I'd say. Let's talk a little bit about that, about the differences between a kind of personal reading and an academic reading. One of the things that has been incredibly exciting for us on the show has been that there's a massive social media following for Dracula at the moment. And many, many of these people have grown up in an age where they have more queer representation in media, where they're they're looking for those coded characters. How do you square books that are in some way representative of an experience that is queer, but are also inherently on some level demonizing of it? In your work, in your studies, how, how have you come across that and how do you tease that out for yourself? Context. I love context. Context <laughs> is wonderful. And um, the author's interpretation of their own text and how they've clearly chosen to write a character or a theme doesn't have to be where the text ends. You can approach these stories, these characters, these themes in a way that works for you. And yeah, I, I don't identify with Dracula, but at the same time, <laughs> I acknowledge that if I'd been prancing around being my effervescent self in the end of the 19th century and someone wrote a book about me, I probably wouldn't have been cast as the romantic hero. And so it's quite useful to look at representation in those terms. I think that there's a real danger in equating identification with a villain with an act of villainy, mm. right? And I think that in particular, the Victorians were really interested in that kind of thought crime idea of what you consume is what you are. Mm. And I'm wondering if some of the reluctance to identify queerness in literature actually comes from a place of not wanting to identify queerness at all. Part of it is definitely that. And I think we're in a time now that we haven't been in before with the extent of queer representation and the availability of positive arcs for queer characters, but also this idea of revisiting stories and writing them again, often from the villain's perspective, even the rise of fan fiction to enter a story from a perspective that hasn't been highlighted before. That gives us, in a way, an idea that that's what we do with stories, that that's what we do with literature. But it hasn't always been like that. And many people did not read until into the 20th century necessarily in order to identify with a character. A lot of books were like that. But in many cases, it's to learn about other parts of the world when there wasn't much travel or it's to enjoy the thrill of the horror, the central thrill of something like Dracula or the deductive game of a detective story. Uh, certainly psychology wasn't as much of a concept in literature at that time, especially in popular fiction. And I think if it had been, I think probably 
Bram Stoker would have been a bit less candid in some of his descriptions in this story. One thing that we, I, I think that we will have hate mail if we don't address, is the conversation that you and I have had briefly off the record, which is this idea of, was Bram Stoker gay? And I want this to almost be apart from the rest of our conversation because it's a very specific kind of question to ask as people reading in 2023. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind giving me just a bullet points version of why that's kind of the wrong question to even be asked. Uh, I think you know that I could rant for a long time about <laughs> it. So the bullet point question is a, a, a good call. Um, the categories that we have of identity, gay, straight, bi, trans, uh, these either didn't exist or didn't mean what they mean today in the past. And so at the time, gay didn't exist. The word homosexual meant something different to what it means now, slightly. It would have been considered a, a woman's soul in a man's body. That's something that we would maybe now talk about as a way to describe the trans experience, right? It not only doesn't mean the same thing literally, but even like subtextually, right? Contextually, if I were to tell a close friend of mine, I think I'm, I'm living in the wrong sort of body, that would mean something very different about the experience of my life versus the experience of someone's life when Bram Stoker was writing. Yes. So I'm wary of going back and looking at historical figures and trying to give them a sexuality because I think at the best it can be misguided because these categories either weren't available to them then or meant different things. And at the worst, it can be dangerous because it's giving the categories and identity labels we have now the power of being timeless mm. and the idea that this is exactly what is completely and True. utterly right. Yeah, there's a capital T truth that now we've found the yeah. right labels and these ones will be eternal. And don't worry about the ones from 100 years ago or 200 years ago or what have you. And indeed, don't worry about how people will be thinking about themselves in 100 years, right. which will certainly not be exactly what we're, how we're talking in this exact cultural moment. So I find that unhelpful. Sure. And also when people talk about someone like Bram Stoker, I don't know anything really about his private life because I'm not a Stoker scholar, but I see people talk about him as a closeted gay man because he married Oscar Wilde's ex and he was friends with Oscar Wilde and he wrote a letter to Walt Whitman, which people describe as a love letter and I'd call it a fan letter. It reduces the broad experience of being a human right. and having relationships and emotions and knowing people and liking things and people, it reduces that to this identity label. Mm. And so I find it really weird <laughs> that we can't see two people who might not have been conventionally masculine being friends without immediately sort of saying, A, they must have been jumping into bed together and B, Therefore, they are this thing. And mm. all of that behavior and experience that they've had means exactly this one prescriptive thing I've decided. Mm. I don't see why we need to focus on, can we call him gay or whatever? Right. 
Well, I'm glad that we touched on that because it would have been rioting in the streets. Let's move on to something else, shall we? I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind putting on a little speculation hat for me. Always. We will speculate together, you and I. If you're a queer writer, either consciously or otherwise, in a period of time that is not like this one, where you don't have a reasonable expectation to uh, reach a wide audience, how do you go about representing your experiences in the realm of subtext? Oh, gosh. For a lot of writers, like a lot of people, it's not a conscious choice. (laughs) And often subtext is there in interpretation. You're revealing things you're not explicitly revealing. And I'd say that there's oodles of that in Dracula. And one of the reasons for that is, in fact, the presence of psychology, because this is published in 1897, I think. So the tail end of the Victorian period, psychology is just taking off. We have advances in science, in medicine. Uh, We know a lot more about how things work, how people work, and we're starting to categorize people into identities. So the pathologization of sexuality, a lot of people are surprised to learn that it's very recent. The word homosexual was coined in 1869, and around then also the word heterosexual was coined. And heterosexual meant an unnatural passion for a different sex. So it was considered a perversion and a mental illness alongside homosexual. And it was only much later that the word adapted. This society at the time is very focused on identity and what your thoughts, what your desires mean about who you are, but also what you are. The characters and the implied author throughout this text are really focused on that. They're really focused on what do these changes in me mean? What do my strange, um, I think he calls them midnight fancies that Jonathan Harker has about Dracula coming to visit him in bed, um, which (laughs) I'm sure isn't queer at all, but... No, put it aside. Don't think about it. We'll put it in a little box somewhere else. (laughs) An academic 200 years from now will pick it up and be like, ooh, (laughs) what's in here? He wonders what these midnight fantasies he has mean. And then he immediately reassures himself by reminding himself he's got a wife, which is interesting Mm. in itself. Let's talk a little bit about that context thing, right? If you are someone who is getting really into a a book or say a series of books, whether it's Agatha Christie or if it's Conan Doyle or, or what have you, what kind of resources do you recommend for people to better understand the historical context in which these books are being written, the kinds of sociological things. Um, Frankly, Google isn't going to cut it in a lot of these cases if you want, like, a nuanced understanding of sexual and gender history. What's a a resource that you've found has made these kinds of conversations more accessible for you? Well, I go and find things that interest me. But I'm weird because I like doing historical research. (laughs) I like doing contextual research. Um, With a lot of older books, you can get editions that have introductions. Don't don't skip the introduction. Read it. It's really interesting. And then look at the people being discussed. But you can also talk to other readers online who often 
know things or spot things that you wouldn't have known or spotted and find things that way. Obviously, I love academic writing, but I know it's not for everyone. And I think queer theory is the tool that massively helped me unlock these texts because I was reading some of the big, often intimidating names in queer theory, like Judith Butler and Michel Foucault and Eva Kosofsky Sedgwick, two of whom I love. And <laughs> they really did help me think about these books I was reading. They don't talk about the books, but they talk about ways of thinking and ways of reading. So when I read a passage from Judith Butler, which really got me started on my whole project to queer detective fiction at the time, it was this line about how identity is created. And Judith Butler writes feminist philosophy and is considered one of the parents of queer theory. And they wrote something along the lines of, we create our identity through a series of not me's, identifying people who are other and strange and wrong and saying, well, I'm not that. And then the next stage is abjection, which means getting rid of all the bits about ourselves that don't fit the mold we've chosen. And when I thought about identity in that sense, I started looking in the books I was reading at how characters define themselves. And do you know, I noticed something really interesting. Very few heroes in books have much discernible personality. If you think about James <laughs> Bond, who is the ultimate macho straight man, he's like the ultimate hero. What do we know about him other than he's a spy who sleeps with a lot of women? I mean, he's literally a number, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And he kills a lot of bad guys. We know so much more about the villains he encounters. And the reason we know more about them is because they're defined in a lot of detail so that we can think, okay, the hero's not like them, therefore he's good, because we know this villain is bad. Well, okay, play with me in this space for a moment. Let's talk about Dracula. Yes. Right? So let's talk about the not me thing. Yeah. Because we've had other guests on the program who have talked about things like anti-Semitic tropes in vampirism, things about, you know, what were the gender roles in Victorian England. I'm realizing that we've put together a syllabus, which is incredible. <laughs> There's several points in the book at which characters will say something along the lines of poking fun at the idea of the new woman. Yes. And they'll say something on the lines of like, well, wouldn't it be fun if I could just do that? Oh, but that's silly. That's not me. Perhaps the reason that this book has taken on such a, a wildfire online, especially in, on Tumblr, which is a fairly queer social media site, is that these distinctions sometimes also highlight that which they're trying to distance themselves from. Do you think that's a fair read? Yeah, 100%. Because, of course, characters like Lucy and perhaps especially Mina, they are examples of the new woman, or, or at the very least, their existence would not be written as it is without that concept of the new woman. Uh, it's very much informed them. And then, of course, they have to jettison it. They have to say, of course, I'm not like that. And we see that all the time in real life as well. People denying something that's obviously hugely influential in what's made them. Uh, and yeah, it draws attention to it, absolutely, in a similar way 
we can read a lot into what is loudly silent in the books or what is missing. Mm. How do you see that in, so jumping forward from, from the Victorian, so let's go a little bit forward in time. Let's jump up to Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, not a Gothic author, but certainly within some of those traditions, detective fiction being something of a bedfellow. The traditional view of Christie, and um, we might be getting off topic, I don't know. But no, the please. Traditional... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can always go, go on about Christie. <laughs> the I, traditional I wish you would, view, please. view is that she didn't engage with any form of social commentary. The traditional view is that she was just writing puzzles. They were called animated algebra and that there was absolutely no literary value in her work. And now we are seeing a much more diverse approach to her work and other examples of detective fiction, popular literature. So there is a reading of Christie that says that her kind of middle-class worldview is so extreme that it draws attention to how silly it is. And that's potentially a reading. One thing from the queer perspective, what I find fascinating about Christie as a writer is that she uses our prejudices or, or the implied reader's prejudices against them. So she will create these stereotyped characters who are written according to available codes of what would then called gender inversion or queerness. And so if you ever meet a man in a 20th century novel with long artistic fingers who works in an antique shop or a woman who wears tweed and is a, a sports mistress, then you can guess what the author might be trying to imply. And the presentation there is to make us not trust them because they're queer. And then what Christie will do is always make them innocent and not the murderer in order to trick us as readers trying to solve a mystery. And so she uses our expectation against us and in that way highlights it. Well, that's interesting, too, in the context of going back to constructing good and evil in popular literature, right? because these characters are being specifically highlighted for their queer features while also being explicitly removed from the crime itself, right? The, they have not committed a crime. They're a red herring uh, of the sort. Which does that inherently place them apart from evil in her stories? If you subscribe to the view that the point of a mystery story is the restoration of order, they're still going at the end of the story, whereas a character we've been told to like and trust normally has been identified as bad and expunged from the narrative. So in a way, it's the opposite to that form of making your identity with a series of not me's because it's pointing out bits that we've been told are good that are actually bad. So it's interrogating our initial assumptions. So how do you feel then about the idea that Christie was a, a non-political writer in some sense, that kind of traditional academic view of her body of work? Oh, it's rubbish. <laughs> Anything else or just flat? It's just very <laughs> silly. Yeah, it is really silly. It's so funny, the confidence with which you speak about it. It's not, it's like not even a debate worth having. I feel that way very often as someone who's like a hardcore horror literature person because mm. there are certainly, I think, forms of art that we're told are inherently lesser. And isn't it funny that sometimes those are the forms that can 
exposed us to queer ideas, to queer identities. Yeah. So we've talked about detective fiction. We've talked a little bit about the Gothic. Are there other forms of popular literature that you feel are really ripe for exploration in terms of queer theory? Okay, here's my thought of this. When I started doing my PhD, it was about 10 years ago, I think, queer studies was quite developed, quite established. But the kind of books that were being talked about were always ones with explicit LGBT themes or characters or authors or authors that people have said are LGBT, which is another issue. And one of the reasons I chose Agatha Christie, the best-selling novelist of all time, is because I think there's queerness everywhere. And I think that in order for something to have mainstream appeal, it has to be able to engage more than one type of person. And really, the idea of the completely straight and narrow, the completely normal, if you like, doesn't exist. And the demographic that would serve if it existed would be vanishingly small because no one is actually normal. So for something to have mass appeal, it has to appeal to lots of different types of people. And therefore, there has to be something going on that's interesting to study. And what I don't understand is why people study the same stuff over and over again when they're not interested in it. It never occurred to me not to study Agatha Christie, who's uh, probably the best writer who ever existed. Sorry if you've got your faith. Yeah. But... <laughs> every, every other writer, <laughs> step aside. <laughs> I, I mean, I once said that on a panel interview with a lot of very distinguished crime writers, and they were a little <laughs> bit annoyed, I think. <laughs> I won't tell. It stays between you, me, and everyone subscribed to the podcast. Perfect. No, I, I love that, though. I think that's a very almost hopeful, almost optimistic read of what queer studies can be. Because a, a secret fear of mine that I'll let you in on for a long time has been that for something to become popular, it has to be in some way really explicitly reinforcing the kinds of toxic status quos that exist in society. Like, it shouldn't surprise us when something popular in the past is in some way problematic because it wouldn't have gotten popular if it was not itself problematic. And what you've done today for me here is you've flipped the coin. <laughs> you've said, yes, of course, however, here's this other way you can think about it, which is that for things to become popular, they, they have to include the swaths of the world that are not thought of as, as regular. Yeah. It'd be the most boring thing that's ever existed. And it wouldn't exist. I don't think straight people exist, by the way. Mm. Um, and by that, I don't mean everyone's on a... Well, I do think everyone's on a sexuality spectrum, but that's not what I mean. I, I, <laughs> I'm not trying to kind of recruit everyone to my bisexual okay, army. Okay, you can. But... <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Bisexual Army podcast. We've been recruiting for a bit. We fight under the banner of Judith Butler. You've been warned about us, I assume. Perfect. But <laughs> I don't think that so much, but I don't think straight people exist in that. It's not a static idea, and it is something that is always, as you say, defined against scapegoats against other people and other things. It's that series of not me's. And in a way, Dracula is wonderfully queer and 
possibly so popular because he is the ultimate other. And I know a lot of people have probably said that already on your podcast. <laughs> no, say, say it again. Preach it to the rafters. Yeah. Even down to his title. So he's Count Dracula. That is a form of peerage that was not available in England. The English version of a count is an earl. And in fact, he shouldn't ever be called Count Dracula. The correct way to address him would be Lord Dracula. So the reference to him as Count Dracula is a very deliberate way of emphasizing that he's other. Yeah, I guess you would be hard pressed to find a category in which Dracula is not made into some sort of othered figure. Because we've talked a little bit about kind of the racial aspects. We've talked about kind of pseudo-racial religious aspects around, you know, Jewish stereotype. We've talked about the types of gender roles that he plays. We've talked about his labor and how he labors in his own castle, which is very against the mold for what... Man, that's an interesting framework that he's he's in some way kind of a societal void. It's like if you added up all of the various ways in which you can define yourself against, what you end up with is a monster, in this case, the Count. But what do you think it says about our culture over time that this character has transmuted so much? That we've seen the return of Count Dracula as you know, in, in some ways comedic, in some ways monstrous in kind of other contexts. What should we view as an audience in that transformation? What I think it really says is that it's the character has tapped into something very basic in us. And it's the basic archetype characters that fit so well. And the fact that he's presented not just as an other, but also as an attractive other, even down to at the very beginning, Jonathan is horrified by the paprika but still wants the recipe you know he, he's very drawn <laughs> to it all i adore that comparison spot <laughs> Don't on we all know men like that horrified <laughs> by the paprika but still want the recipe that kind of attractive repellent everything we're meant to avoid type figure will always be eternal in life and we'll deal with it in different ways at different points of life but also at different points of history so a bit like Sherlock Holmes, one of my faves, he can be many things in different contexts. And like a lot of Victorian figures, actually, it can be, or 19th century figures, can be a very enduring archetype. I was actually going to ask you to take us to that place of detection fiction. Where else might a curious listener find those kinds of archetypical really interesting characters in detective fiction. Yeah, go to detective fiction. Um, all of it. Detective fiction is uh, inherently gothic in its roots. Its roots are in the gothic and in parody. And you can look at writers like Edgar Allan Poe, who some say invented the modern detective story. You can look at Wilkie Collins is one of my favorite writers when I'm in a bad mood, if that makes sense. I have different writers for different moods. So um, <laughs> when I'm in an angsty mood, it's Iris Murdoch. But when I'm in a bad mood, it's Wilkie Collins. And I, I don't know why. But he also, some say he invented the detective novel. I would disagree. But And then, of course, <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle. 
Sherlock Holmes, another creation who has been read queerly many times. Every one of those Sherlock Holmes short stories includes some sort of monstrous depiction of polite society, uh, and it's just so much fun and so interesting. So I would definitely turn to detective stories. Uh, and one of my favorite things to do, because I have no friends, is to look at old Victorian magazines and read the short stories there. And some of them are terrible and some of them are amazingly terrible. Uh, and you just get this sort of feeling of the world, but also these fun sensations. If there's one piece of advice our audienceship is likely to take, seeking out Victorian magazines on their own time seems pretty high on the list. Before I bring us into the home stretch, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the figure of the detective briefly, just because it is your forte. And I was wondering if you had thoughts on why it is that detectives are so often very colorful characters and very outside of what we might think of as the norm. Because it would be really boring if they were... Because normal people don't <laughs> exist. There, there's no such... There, there have been a lot of detectives over time, uh, thousands of detectives in literature, and probably most of them are considered normal characters. They just don't endure because it's boring. I mean, obviously, I love Hercule Poirot, who is uh, flamboyant, effeminate, and uh, Belgian. That's the B in the LGBTQ umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, continue. <laughs> no, but it, it, it did become a habit. After Sherlock Holmes, it became a, a convention of crime writing to give your detective a quirk, and that sort of evolved into giving your detective psychological damage, mm. uh, which is much less fun, but still actually does a similar thing because it gives them a detective methodology. Because the thing about Poirot, and Miss Marple and my other favorite detective, Adela Lestrange Bradley, who was created by Gladys Mitchell in Speedy Death. Read it, 1928. The thing about them is they're weird. And so while you remember them and you notice them straight away, they can still slip under the radar in the world of their books because no one takes them seriously. So suspects will let down their guard and discuss freely things around them. And then the sidekick always has to be the normal one. So if you think about Captain Hastings, I think Poirot calls him amazingly normal. Dr. Watson, I know there's an effort to reclaim Dr. Watson as some sort of genius because he is a doctor, uh, but I know a lot of doctors and that doesn't make you a genius. Uh, Dr. Watson is quite stupid. Uh, the, the, the Watson, the stooge, always has to be a bit stupider than the average reader. The reason for that is partly so you can sort of feel better than them while you're being helped to solve the mystery, but also so you don't notice them so much because they're boring. Dr. Watson couldn't hold a narrative by himself. It'd be just really, really dull. Sherlock Holmes can because he's weird. I love weird. I'm hearing this fascinating parallel because I, I really have not done enough reading into detective stories, but I'm hearing a really fascinating parallel between detectives and monsters. So in horror theory, we talk a lot about, like, what does a monster mean? Why do you have a monster? And oftentimes the stories that endure are the ones that have really, really interesting monsters, whether they're human or supernatural or what have you. 
And it, it feels to me like we've kind of landed here at the center point on the diagram where as we continue to read Dracula, as hopefully people go out and go read other Gothic literature, but also go out and read some of the detective fiction that was spawned from this tradition, that we should be looking for the ways in which these characters aren't just doing interesting things for the plot, but are being interesting things <laughs> in the larger societal scope. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be as worthy as that. You don't have to consciously sit down after reading a book and write an essay on what does this tell me about the late 19th century. But it can tell you a lot about people. You can learn a lot about what's the same, what's changed, what attitudes were like then, and think about it in terms of what they're like now. And it just gives you a bit of perspective and hopefully a bit of hope as well. Queerness has always been there. And the things that we think of in terms of our identities now are obviously definitions and ideas that weren't available in the late 19th century. But the thing we need to sort of realize is that these understandings we have of who we are, what we are, will not be common in 100 years. There'll be other ways of thinking about it. Then. And I mean, hopefully some things will be God, some binaries and things will no longer be considered, but there'll be other limitations. There'll be other ways we process our identities. And you can not so much look for gay characters or whatever in old books, uh, unless you want to, but it's more about looking at themes, ideas and feelings, I guess. Feelings, they're, they're nice uh, throughout history and looking at attitudes and looking at how there's so much more going on in a world than the official version. Dr. Jamie Bernthal Hooker, thank you for coming on the program. <laughs> what a way to end it out. Please, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Books that you're writing, lecture series that you'll be a part of, or just things that you want people to go check out while you have the microphone? If you'd like to know more about Queering Agatha Christie, I have a book that's imaginatively called Queering Agatha Christie. Uh, so check that out. Or you can Please do. follow me on the Twitters, which is at JC Berntal. Thank you so much for joining us. All of those links will be down in the show notes as well. We hope you have a wonderful day. Take these nuggets and go approach your favorite popular literature. Don't let anyone tell you it's not worth it. That is art that you're holding, my friend. We will see you next time with even more regarding Dracula. Jamie, once again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to that interview. It was an absolute blast to do. As usual, dialogue editing by yours truly, Stephen and Rosano. Some extra sound design by Tal Manier. This episode was produced by Ella Watts and Pacific S. Obadiah with executive producers Stephen Andrasano, Tal Manier, and Hannah Wright. <clears throat> A Bloody FM production. What is the point of... Oh, no, I've lost it. Ah! That's okay. I was going to say something like were... wonderfully... Yeah, it's, it sounded like it was going to be very erudite and, and what have you. It would have you perfectly crowned that moment. <laughs> Pithy and witty and just excellent. Amazing. <laughs> oh, it's going to break my heart to take that interaction out of this interview. <laughs>
But they did the blooper reel, it's fine. Right, <laughs> put it at the tail end.